a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 72 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a second brain in a Korean... The EU guru himself, your count of continuity, Mr. Nathan B. Butler. Hello, all, and I'm pretty sure he's meaning people like Kieti Mundi. I always pronounce it as Serian, just to make sure that we don't uh, offend any of our North or South Korean listeners out there. Though I guess North Korea would be saying, saying, uh, uh, no, you know watch Star Wars. It teaches you about <laughs> Western ways. Or whatever Kim Jong-un would say before threatening to blow us up for the 30th time. I nuke you! Yeah, you know, I, I thought that was their way of slipping Koreans in there. So, Serian. Okay, I'll try, I'll try to say Serian then. Uh, you know, because the old, what's an Asian in an Asianless society? Well, you definitely don't want to, and this is something that, that my students and I have talked about, how there's a difference between ethnicity and race. How, you know, you've got essentially, science would say, you've got essentially three original human races uh, I think they call it Caucasoid, Negroid, and uh, Mongoloid, and then every other race comes out of that, but we still think of it as essentially uh, white, black, uh, Hispanic, uh, Asian, Native American, um, which is sort of a spinoff of, of Asian initially, uh, with Hispanic being sort of a mixture of uh, European, white, and Native American, and all that kind of stuff, and how even within a race, you've still got, you know, that there's a difference between, say, someone who is Korean, who is Japanese, who is Chinese, who is Vietnamese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, looking at uh, this stuff in here, we now have, uh, it's, it's so much easier, I guess, to tell a story in Star Wars based on ethnicity, because all you got to do to make an entirely new race is not make a subtle difference. Give them a giant head. Or give them crazy Vulcan <laughs> ears. And that's really all, apparently, that you need. It's, it's, it's striking to me sometimes how... In Star Wars, the the subtle differences um, that we see in regular species on Earth, both human and otherwise, seem to be just sort of missing in Star Wars. It's always got to be some gigantic thing. Just like planets tend to have to have like one climate. Um, I don't know. Just it, it, that jumps out at me, given the fact that we are covering a story today dealing with the. Uh, the guys with the gigantic heads who for the longest time were the source of a lot of off-color Star Wars jokes. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we look back at Star Wars Prelude to the Rebellion, the first chapter of Dark Horse Comics' first take on the quote-unquote Star Wars line. 
that would later become Republic and eventually Dark Times. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. That's right, and this is definitely an unusual item here that we're taking a look at, uh, looking back on it. This was the first time that Dark Horse, with in this case Prelude to Rebellion, put out a comic that was meant to directly lead into a new Star Wars film. Of course, they didn't have that opportunity back in the 80s and uh, in 77, but here we are. We're in the lead-up to The Phantom Menace being released in theaters, including having an interesting editorial in one of these about how I know how it ends by Dave Land. Um, and they launch this series, Star Wars, which they call Star Wars Volume 1, as opposed to these days Star Wars Volume 2, even though Marvel had its own Star Wars series that uh, had come out earlier. They put out this just Star Wars ongoing series that we later know as uh, Republic and Dark Times, starting in December of 1998. And when they did this, they sort of led into it that same month with a special animated uh, flash animation that is number zero issue on StarWars.com, which of course is long gone with all the redesigns of that site, along with that first issue. And they give us Prelude to Rebellion in issue one, two, and three. And then in issues four, five, and six, they turn around and not only give us three more parts of the Prelude to Rebellion storyline, they give us a storyline, Vow of Justice, which is basically a backup story that plays into the origins of Kiati Mundi. They have turned Kiati Mundi, Dark Horse in this case, have turned Kiati Mundi into sort of the Boba Fett of Episode <laughs> 1. Just like um, uh, Hasbro, I guess it was, turned Mace Windu and the Stamp into the Boba Fett of Episode 1, where... You know, you don't know much about the character. You know he's going to show up in the film. So here, let's put out some toys, or let's, in this case, put out some stories and build up this character who, when you finally see the movie, is in it for like five minutes at most. But Just this long was our the hiccup, right? But this was our first glimpse at characters specifically designed for Episode One being given their uh, time in the spotlight in the ongoing Republic series. And he would stay around Kiati Mundi for quite a while. Yeah, in fact, that Zero issue, we have it up on our Facebook page under Rebellion, uh, Prelude to Rebellion number Zero, if you want to check that out. It's only a quick ten little frames. Uh, one of frames is actually the title. Uh, very short. It's just him and Yoda doing a quick little training. Uh, we even get flashbacks like that in the comic itself. I don't actually have this one as singles. Uh, when I first started collecting the comics... We were in the middle of KOTOR. By comics, I mean the Star Wars comics. I've been collecting Marvel for a lot longer than that. But I was going back trying to find the singles, and it was really hard to do. So I ended up getting this one and the next two arcs in trades. And then from there, I go into singles. Uh, so I only have this in the trade paperback version. So it doesn't have any of the letters of the editor or any of that stuff. It also doesn't have much on the front cover page either. I mean, I'm used to, you know, the later stuff you read. There's a lot of telling you where it's at, where in the time frame, setting it up. There's nothing for that here. This literally just jumps into the middle of it where Saria is a backwater planet and it's so largely left alone that it basically has left them completely out of touch with technology and, and the times. I mean, the youth of the planet, they kind of want to see technology be integrated and the elders don't. They want to see themselves stay separated from the Republic, which is interesting too, because, you know, Kiyotamundi's people 
are not members of the Republic at this point. And that is something that is weighing on him, even in the Zero issue. He's worried about uh, Salias and, and Braun, these representatives of the Republic, and what they could show up and what they could, you know, what the waves they could cause for his people and his culture, his polygamist culture, which is also interesting for Jedi. The fact that his people are a, a what, a 20 to 1 ratio of women to men. And so he is required by law to help repro reproduce and keep the population growing there. And so it's, it's fun to watch in that regard, the little, the little dialogue moments where he and his, his, his bond wife are talking and, and she's just like, you just don't get it. Go back to your Jedi master. And it's just classic because she's totally talking about, about sex. She wants to have another, she wants to have a kid. She's ready to give him the air that he needs and all he has is daughters. And yet, he doesn't get it because that's not the Jedi way. It's it's interesting how they put these little relationships in there. They're very subtle, very short, but they're there. Yeah, the setup to this thing is is unusual, I would say. I mean, it just it kind of comes out of nowhere. And we've got creative teams involved in this that really aren't around all that much anymore. So reading this at this point, you know, just kind of adds, I guess, somewhat to the shock value of it. The writer actually for both Prelude to Rebellion and Vow of Justice is Jan Sternad, if I'm pronouncing that. It's S-T-R-N-A-D. I've never quite known how to pronounce that correctly. Um, and this is a writer who was aboard for uh, some of the Droids comics, Season of Revolt, and probably best known for a stint doing a lot of the storylines or several storylines uh, for X-Wing at the time. And the artist for Vow of Justice is one that we are particularly familiar with, having checked out the X-Wing stuff a while back. Of course, that is John Nadeau. And he did stuff like uh, Battleground Tatooine, uh, The Warrior Princess, In the Empire Service, and whatnot. So he's fairly well-known to Star Wars readers of this era, the uh, late 1990s when these were coming out. But then the artist for Prelude to Rebellion is Anthony Wynn. And to my knowledge, this is the only Star Wars story ever to be penciled by Anthony Wynn. So it's kind of an aberration in that sense. Uh, most of the time in Republic, we see the same creative teams kind of cycle their way through, but not this guy. This is a guy who was there and then gone, which gives it sort of a different flavor. Um, I would argue that looking at this, some of the shading lines and the way that some of these characters are drawn, they remind me very much of like an Eric Larson, uh, Savage Dragon era type of um of storytelling visually. Not that that's a bad thing necessarily, just unusual. You can definitely tell a difference in the feel of these comics compared to, say, some of the more recent uh, Star Wars stuff that's out there. But yeah, they set it up initially, this idea that Saria is not part of the Republic, which left me kind of sitting back. Uh, I remember at the time thinking, well, then how is ki mundi a Jedi? We later do get the flashback to essentially how, uh, in Vow of Justice, how this mysterious Jedi woman shows up uh, having heard rumors of a Force-sensitive child, and they take the child back at four years old to train him as a Jedi, and he spends 21 years training before heading back to Saria and all that. But there's that whole issue of, huh, apparently a Jedi can go find a Force-sensitive child and bring them back to the Order, even if it's not a Republic world. You know, which was not really something, I think, that we had really considered all that much prior to this, because we didn't have a lot of background on the Republic as a whole, but it certainly opens up the idea of kind of what we're getting in really by the end of Fate of the Jedi and what we're going to be seeing in Crucible. Um, this idea, at least based on what the end of Fate of the Jedi set up, this idea of sort of the Jedi as autonomous. The Jedi are not agents of the Republic per se, 
but they serve society and serve the force, and in doing so, serve the Republic. Um, hence being able to kind yeah. of be outside that, that jurisdiction. I was kind of shocked at the time, I recall, um, aside from the fact that they were giving us this new Jedi that we had never really had any reason to care about before, and frankly, after these stories, I still have very little positive feelings toward Kiati Money. He's really a dull character to me, quite frankly. Um, despite his little line or two in Phantom Menace, um, what really kind of threw me was, whoa, they're telling a story here that essentially revolves around a man who's engaged in polygamy. Um, Star Wars has, has this unique ability to probe into cultural aspects, and these are polygamous Syrians, not Koreans, because that would be a big difference. Uh, <laughs> I would imagine that would be something that, uh, uh, that would be showing up all over North Korean, uh, uh, television. You see what these South Koreans are doing? This is war! Um, again. But it just kind of seems to me that Star Wars, in having the ability to probe things in a sci-fi and fantasy context, and having the ability to sort of remove any of the uh, social stigma stuff of the modern world, the modern real world, and the uh, natural kind of tendencies politically uh, and socially in the real world, they will do what science fiction tends to do very well. You tell a story that explores these areas without being offensive and allows for some, aha, huh, pondering about unusual issues. And this is one of them. But this is one of the few times it seems like that Star Wars was really in your face about something that was essentially not a social norm in modern American society, at least. And here it's just kind of taken as a given that Kiati Mundi, by being a Syrian, thanks to uh, the low birth rate of male children, um, it, it creates this situation where you have uh, bond wives and honor wives. The bond wife as your main wife, Honor wives essentially is the ones that you take in. It actually kind of reminds me of uh, early Islamic tradition uh, with Muhammad where the idea was that you needed to uh, have men to look after the women even when the men died in combat. So it was this idea of you take multiple wives not for the sexual pleasure of it, but you take multiple wives for the uh, protecting, uh, overseeing type of aspect of it to create kind of this extended web um, a familial connection so that everyone has someone watching out for them. And it sort of feels like they're playing into that type of, of thing here where here's a social and scientific reason why you would need polygamy in a society like this. Of course, this is where the bombshell was dropped, though, because not only does Kiati Mundi have a bond wife, uh, Seha, I think it's, or no, Shay, excuse me, um, but he has many honor wives, including uh, Mawin, and he has many daughters. And then we found out three years later, or four years, given that the first issue was being released in December of 98, that, oh yeah, Jedi can't get married and have kids. Whoopsie! Oh, yeah, that was, that was the interesting twist there, was that they're all like, well, but Kai gets a special, we're just gonna let him, he gets to do his own thing, because culturally... It's the culture. It's kind of like they were taking like the prime directive in that regard. Like, well, you can't marry unless it's like a planetary law, eh? And then it's okay. You can you can sleep with as many of those women as you want, eh? I, I don't know. It, it was just one of those things where it, it, it worked. The retcon worked enough, but we have multiple cases of this throughout the EU, where you know you you'll find out someone was marrying here and there, and then oh no, we're not supposed to do that. And that even goes back even to Revan. I mean, Revan's marriage to Basta Lashan is one of those hey, shh, shh, we can't talk about that kind of things. Uh, another thing that I like that this issue does that 
later comics and even even books will do in the backs of their stuff is it gives you uh, translations right there in the beginning when uh, Effent Mon is uh, kind of trying to figure out something in the air, the minerals. It gives you translations of the word uh, Takehi, uh, Malinum, or Malium, and Gualia. And, of course, you know, even though they translate it, I still can't say it right. But it was nice that they put it there and gave me an opportunity to try. <laughs> you know, Kudos for that. I, I like that. Um, you know, the whole Effent Mon thing, though, I don't know. It, it, it never really struck me that he made a good villain i mean i get by the time you get to the end that he was the reason that it ties to tatooine and jabba and i understand that but i never cared for that character the big head and all i i just i i think for for me his addition to the story really brought the whole issue down on a level or two yeah it really sort of felt like prelude to rebellion was trying to tell too many stories at one time and succeeding in very few um, this is definitely not one of my favorite series now. It was not one of my favorite series back then. I remember it feeling like a chore to read through, hoping we get something that more concretely ties it into the Phantom Menace. Um, it just, it, it never struck me as something to get excited about. I mean, even looking at the, uh, the, as a Ken Kelly, I guess, did the cover art for the first issue. It's like, ooh, a purple lightsaber, which, according to Lucas, is only there for Mace Windu, but that's another story. Didn't they write that in where they were trading lightsabers, some of the mm -hmm. members on the council, and that was how they got around that? Yeah, the the, the whole fealty thing where they trade mm. them, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but we get this this sort of really cool poster-looking cover, but it's Effant Mon on one side and Kiati Mundi on the other side of the lightsaber blade, and everybody's looking at that like, who the hell are these guys? And why should this excite me? And I think even by the end of it, you're thinking, why should this have excited me? I mean, Effant Mon and this whole idea, well, you know, he's on the planet. The way they explain this is that he is looking for Malium. Malium feeds the Takave plant, which apparently uh, is such a big deal that they named the capital city Takave City after it, it would seem, or maybe the plant's named after the city. Um, the Takave plant, which in turn produces uh, Guilia. And Guilia is essentially uh, a euphoric substance, and it's very sought after. So essentially, it's a drug that he's trying to smuggle out of there. Only found on that planet. Right. And we've got this concept where there's these outsider citadels. Now, how were they allowed to be there? They don't explain within the course of the story. There's just these this huge uh, building called the Outsider Citadel that has a huge population living mostly in squalor. And Eflantman is sort of a big crime lord inside it. But he's gathering up all of these uh, these things to be able to produce this, uh, this euphoric substance for Jabba. But to pay for that, they're smuggling in technology, which is uh, an advanced Republic-style technology is something that Saria does not have at all. Um, they're still riding on animals and whatnot. They're sort of... they're. I don't, I don't want to say pre-industrial, but pretty close in terms of their yeah. society. And the idea is, here is that they're smuggling in this technology and selling it to a younger generation called the tech rats, so to speak, um, who are rebelling against the government, who want to, to tie into the Republic, who want this new technology and for things to change. Um, and by selling it to them, that's how he gets the money to finance the criminal operations for Java. So when he has to escape and get the heck out of there, they go 
to Java. And it's it's kind of a convoluted way of finding a way to work Java into the story. I mean, I guess it all makes sense, um, but it just never felt like there was a lot of menace to it. I mean, even when first issue, okay, the thing that really sets this in motion, uh, there is a protest. And Sylvan, uh, who is one of Kiati Mundi's daughters, Sylvan is at this event, this protest or this rally with uh, Maj, which is this kind of uh, offbeat guy. You know, he wants to, to bring the technology in. He's kind of the smarmy, I'm a teenager, I know everything type of guy. Um, and at this point, in the midst of this rally, um, as things are getting heated, Kiati is welcomed by Braun, who is there to kind of manipulate things into trying to get them into the Republic and whatnot, because um, they want the resources of Surya and all. Um, he's like, yeah, yeah, Kiati Mundi, you want to come up and talk? Sure, you come up and talk. So he can look like he's the open-minded one. And the kids start shouting him down. As they pull him down, that is Kiati Mundi, as they pull him down, and he's not using the Force to defend himself at all, uh, they manage to basically pull a Luke Skywalker in choices of one idiotic move on him, where Madge pickpockets Kiati Mundi's lightsaber from him as he's being pulled down. Now, if you're a Jedi and you're being manhandled, you may not want to hurt the people in the crowd, but are you really going to let them haul you off like that? And are you really going to let them steal your lightsaber? And then, of course, Maj turns it on, being an idiot, pointing at somebody and stabs him through. The kid dies, and in the hubbub that follows, um, Braun helps to shift the blame to Kiati Mundi, essentially framing him for the murder of that crowd member. Immediately once we start issue two, though, it's, well, you've been brought here on the charge of murder. It said, it even says in the opening, uh, Braun was quick to charge Key with murder. It's too late to stop the rumors. Once smoke escapes from a bottle, there's no putting it back, as Braun well knows. A day which started well has gone disastrously awry. And then immediately it's, yeah, but we found other person's fingerprints on the lightsaber, so yeah, it turns out that Kiati Money's telling the truth, so uh, you're free to go. Where's the tension in that? We're left well, with a cliffhanger of, holy crap, Keanu Mundi, a Jedi, might be tried for murder. The most interesting point this story ever reaches. And they blow it off between two issues and just let it go by the second page of issue number two. The second panel of issue number two, because page one is all one panel. That's ridiculous storytelling. Well, I, I saw it as like a setup of what they're trying to do with the technology. Uh, you know, because bro, the, the, here, here's the thing, okay? The Republic isn't even on this planet, yet they've allowed the Republic to build on it. Question one, why in the hell are you letting them build on it when it goes against everything you have? Now you've got a constant pressure here. Hey, take our technology, take our technology, take our technology. Okay, so you got that aspect of it. Now, how in the heck is it that Braun is not only able to come out of the city, he's, he's allowed to, everyone else has to stay in the city, he's able to come out and he's able to do it on his repulsor lift, which goes against laws and he's not able to go to jail for that. He goes out there, incites the crowd to riot, he invites Kai up on the stage knowing this is going to backfire and then when it's all said and done he charges Moondy with the crime? How in the hell is he even able to, to charge anything? What does he have any legitimacy on this planet to charge him with anything? I mean that that's what I don't understand is how he ties into it but then when it goes to the, them letting him off well that goes back to, to Solias the, uh, the Twi'lek who has brought all this technology with him 
that has gotten Kai off the hook. And there's that whole aspect of, well, gee, Kai, you, you're willing to use our technology when it suits you. And they keep throwing that back there. So I kind of thought that that was like a plot on the Republic's end between Brawn and Solias here. That Because I think back with the Jedi Quest books and how it seemed like the Republic was getting more and more corrupt, which made sense because you're about to have the Empire kick in and you want to have the Republic looking corrupt. So everybody goes, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's become an Empire now because the Republic was a bad thing. And so you're kind of seeing that, that the Republic is flawed, even though it is the preferred system. I mean, so I took it like that, 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 that Braun and and the Twi'lek were working together to kind of set Kai up as a complete patsy. Yeah, it just, that brings up the issue, though, of why is, is, is Kiati Mundi even there? Okay, number one, why is he living on this planet rather than going on Jedi missions across the galaxy, as most Jedi tend to do? Maybe he's well, just... is he living there? I, I was under the impression this was just a mission, though. It could be, but I mean, he's walking around, he's spending time with his family, he's visiting uh, uh, the homes, they talk about going to bed, and it's just, it just kind of seems to me like it's, like they're making it out to be him living there at the time, all just within the context of this issue, rather than any stuff uh, provided later to try to, uh, to, to explain it. Um, you talk about how uh, uh, talking isn't the problem, we do plenty of talking, says Shay. Um, apparently, you know, Kiati Money needs to spend more time doing some banging rather than babbling, um, apparently, according to her. Um, it, it, you get the feel that he's just kind of normally there, but then that opens up the, who is he there to represent? He's from the Republic. Of course he's going to be fine with Republic technology. But if he was sent by the Republic, shouldn't he be there on the side of Solias and Braun, wanting them to go into the Republic? Or maybe... He's there as a mediator. But if he's there as a mediator, why in the hell is he there arguing the case for why they shouldn't get the technology and join the Republic? The, the, the political realities of the way this is supposed to work don't make sense unless he is either stationed there or living there as a Jedi, which would be odd. A Jedi stationed on a non-Republic world, albeit his home world. Um, though I guess um, they, they eventually will say... Um, I think it's in the New Essential Guide to Characters, even, or something like that. They will eventually, or maybe it's the first one, um, they say, well, we've got an explanation for this whole Jedi attachments thing. See, because of the same reason why they prize uh, males as male children so much on Saria, uh, and the same reason why they allow all these honor wives, this whole issue of um, the unlikelihood of having sons, um, well, see, that's why they let Kiati Mundi actually get married multiple times and have children multiple times because see Syrians are a special case maybe they can say that for why he is there on the planet um but in the context of just the issues themselves not getting any kind of will Syrians get special treatment type of explanations to go with it at the time this felt very odd and very awkward if this is supposed to be setting the tone for what the Jedi do and how they act in the prequel era per the Phantom Menace that this is supposed to lead up into, it doesn't do that great of a job doing it. And we wind up with this this interesting situation where he goes to find uh, evidence of, okay, you know, where am I going to find where Maj is hiding out? Uh, this man who truly is responsible for the murder. And what more is there to this? We have people riding around on swoop bikes. Somebody's smuggling it in. Um, he goes to his Ortolan buddy, Eddie, Y-D-D-E, because, of course, it's Star Wars. 
um, can't spell it normally, and gets himself basically beat up or about to be beat up by a bunch of thugs who encounter him in sort of the seedier side of the Citadel, uh, the Outsider Citadel, and winds up whooping their butts with the help of his crazy, psychotic, uh, predator, carnivore, ostrich-looking bird that he rides. <laughs> um, until finally, Efantman needs to get them off the planet, and it becomes sort of a race into space to get Maj and the others off of the planet so that he can basically you know, hide his involvement in everything that's going on on the planet, because he knows that Kiati Money will eventually find his way to Efantman. Of course, he will find it in a way that, honestly, to me, seems... It seems dark side. I don't think at the time it necessarily felt like it, because we we didn't know what to expect. But if if you were disturbed by um, Ahsoka's way of wanting to use the Force to mind-bend someone in interrogation in the Clone Wars, or the way that uh, she turned to a Newt Gunray and threatened him early in the Clone Wars, or maybe even when uh, I think it was Obi-Wan and Mace and Anakin, I think they were in the room with Cad Bane early, and I think it was season two maybe, where they were using the Force to basically uh, pull information out of his mind in an interrogation room and whatnot. Here's Ki-Adi Mundi in 1999, early 99, when issue number uh, three came out, and he's basically manipulating a guy's mind, a grand's mind, in order to pull out the information that he wants and force him to be fearful at some times, calm yeah. at other times, to Ramping manipulate his up. emotions. Um, at the time, I think we would have thought, that's kind of an underhanded thing for a Jedi to do, but this was setting the stage for what we expect of Jedi. That, to me, looking back on it, seems like he's really digging towards the dark side, given the fact that his family is involved. And it doesn't seem like there's ever any real mention of this idea that this was underhanded. It was just sort of taken as this sort of, this is what the Jedi do. They're, throughout this story, he's constantly using Jedi mind tricks on people and manipulating them. And seems like it's totally cool, as long as it's supposedly in pursuit of a criminal. Well, I think that plays into the aspect that the Jedi are flawed. And and this, I think, is is fan interpretation here is that, you know, we always expected to see the Jedi as just awesome, you know, pillars of awesomeness. And what Lucas actually gives us is that, yeah, while they are really cool and awesome, there is a flaw to what they are doing that gives a legitimacy to what the Sith are trying to do. Uh, going back, though, to, to whether or not uh, Kiatamuni lives on the planet, in the Zero issue, when he's talking with Yoda, it, it kind of makes it feel like he's living on Coruscant, and he's going back there to take care of the situation. almost feels like it could be one more final trial that he has, because they're talking, you know, they're doing the training, and, and Yoda does something that Kai doesn't think is fair, and Yoda goes, fair? Care your enemies about fair? Civilized. These times are peaceful. But someday unfairness you must face unfairness and cowardice prepare yourself for it you must kai Adamudi. and then kai goes it isn't fair that saria be subjected to such pressures from the republic it's cowardly for Braun to rouse our people against the sanctity of saria i feel that a confrontation is inevitable uh and then he goes off to confront Braun. i mean it it definitely seems like yeah there is a personal stake here for him and that he needs to go and show that he can be a Jedi and you know remove himself from it which we see again later when the government points out that you know it's your daughter you're going after her uh, maybe you're a little too close to the situation and and he says no you know I'm going to finish this through 
Yeah, but see, I would, I would buy that if the Zero issue wasn't told almost entirely in flashback. He's talking to himself about how, you know, it isn't fair that Cerebi is subjugated to the, to the pressures from the Republic. It's cowardly for Braun to do such and such. Um, he's remembering back to Yoda's teachings, just like he does throughout this six-issue arc. But at the time he's getting that lesson, he is a much, 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 much younger man in those flashbacks. I'm not sure, sure that that gives us any indication, uh, at least within the issue itself, of whether he is supposed to be, you know, living there or not. Which I guess isn't, you know, isn't germane necessarily to the whole issue of, you know, being the flawed character. At least in this case, he recognizes when he's doing that interrogation... It says, uh, it's coercion of a sort. To use the force, and like it says, of a sort. Yeah, it's coercion. Period. Yeah. It's coercion of a sort. To use the force during interrogation of a prisoner. The Grand's testimony will be totally inadmissible in court. Uh, but Sylvan's future is at stake. Perhaps her life and time is growing short. So at least he does acknowledge that. But there, it's not really given a chance to see any kind of, of true repercussion. There's no musing on the dark side with it or anything yeah. like that. It's just sort of a, well, it's underhanded. But it's just what needs to be done to get this job right. And then, it's almost like what Coran Horn does in I Jedi when he used fear against the pirates. Only, you know, Coran, he kind of walked more of a light side. I mean, granted, I, I will give Mundy at the end then uses the calming to bring him back after ramping up the guy's fear. But it, yeah, I, I come away with a bad taste in my mouth. Like, dude, this doesn't feel right. Yeah, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering, but also fear leads to confessions. Confessions lead to criminals. Criminals <laughs> lead to incarceration. Lead to everything is hunky dory. Um, I don't know. I just that it's it, it just is a weird comic to be setting up that era. I mean, in the context of 1998-1999, I don't think we were th expecting this. This guy, this situation, this particular story as the lead up to the Phantom Menace, especially since it has almost no relevance to the Phantom Menace. Mm -hmm. I mean, it gives us this idea. Um, by the end of it, we find that uh, there there was a weapons shipment that Jabba was sending to the Trade Federation of this illicit cargo. And there's the, hmm, why would the Trade Federation want that? And by the end of the last issue, we find that this is the event that leads to them finally putting Kiati Mundi on the Jedi Council, although that in and of itself had its own continuity issues, um, because they had there were other stories being produced in which Kiati Mundi was on the Jedi Council prior to this story. And what they had to do is say, well, basically he sort of stepped in um, from time to time when other members were unavailable. Apparently, also I guess unavailable by hologram. And this was where, since Micah Geit dies in Jedi Council Act of War, this is where there is an actual opening and they want to put ki mundi on the Jedi Council permanently. Um, but beyond that, there's very little to actually tie this story into The Phantom Menace. It's much more to get us to know and like, hopefully, <laughs> ki mundi by the time it's over because he's going to become such a major character for the pre-Clone Wars arcs of... Star Wars ongoing slash Republic. It just it just doesn't really really hit those those notes for me for some reason. I mean, for instance, we get no, the, nervous, yeah. the 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 peril of okay, well they're in space, but uh, it just so happens that the ship that Effontmon gets them onto, and by them it's a uh, it's uh, his daughter Sylvan, it's Maj the guy who accidentally killed the dude in the crowd, 
and it's a girl named Twin who's apparently trying to get uh, uh, Maj from Sylvan because those two are apparently an item and she's trying to rip him away and all that kind of stuff. Um, but on this ship, there there was a cargo of, what do they call these things? Um, Divix. Yeah. Okay? Divic pupae. And these pupae were too old for safe shipping, so they hatch and turn into these weird creatures, which I'm surprised we haven't seen a lot more in Star Wars. Um, let's see, they are impervious to hand blaster fire. Their bite causes paralysis in most species, which is convenient since they prefer to dine on living flesh. Their and saliva set is eggs. Right. <laughs> their saliva is acidic enough to eat through uh, plastic steel, according to this issue, um, given enough time. Um, you can suffocate them, but it takes a while. You can crush one, but breaking the skin releases toxic gas from the digestive system. Slicing them with a the lightsaber cauterizes the wound, sealing the gas, which would basically allow Kiati Mundi himself to maybe handle four or five before being completely overwhelmed, and he's going to face supposedly about 2,000 aboard the ship, though it certainly never looks like nearly that much on the ship. And this is the ship they decided to take to get off the planet. Efantman's scheming must have been pretty light on this one for that to be the way they get off the planet and it winds up that the only way that they're able to save themselves because they have to eject in an escape pod is for to count on Keanu Mundy getting aboard looking for his daughter and being willing to basically let the criminal go as long as his daughter is safe with the criminal so that he can activate the necessary manual control to launch the escape pod that has been damaged that's a lot of planning ahead on that ship for him not to have planned ahead and said, gee, maybe we should not take the ship that's got all these crazy, like, uh, Geiger-esque uh, creatures that Ridley Scott would love to see in another alien film. Maybe that's just, you know, maybe we should wait for, for the next ship. Well, and Aliens is about right because they like to in put the pupa into the brain of <laughs> people. That's where they like to ingest it and, and let it hatch. I go back though to the swoops and wait, the ICP. Wait, wait, wait. Like, hang on, let me let me ask a corollary question to that. Okay, the ship is full of pupae, but the pupae are implanted inside the head of someone else. And at one point, Kiati finds a skull with like the skull with a hole in it because the pupae has come out. So if there yeah. are about two thousand of these, shouldn't there be about two thousand or so dead bodies with big old gaping holes in their heads? lying on the floor of this freighter or does that mean well, that somewhere they hatched out of someone's head or they popped out of someone's head to become yeah. these little pupae that can't move on their own and then somebody just moved them to the ship either way it's a well, creepy creepy proposition i'm looking at it from the hut angle this is a delicacy these are, are being made for cooking aspects i would envision that these pupae are being harvested not actually having to be injected maybe the living one is somehow restrained they're able to take it out somehow in that regard the one that we see that had been attacked was after those things had actually hatched and he went after one of the crew and then jabbed into the skull although granted the bones were pretty decompressed at that point maybe that's what happens by the injection but i, I was looking at it from you know going with with how effortmon chose this ship that this ship made sense for him because it was it was automatically bound to go to Jabba because it had snacks for Jabba. 
but he needed to get on the ship at the right time. So he was having the ship wait, maybe. Because I couldn't imagine, like, I could I could see Jabba going, I want those. I don't care if they hatch on the way. You're going to get them. You're going to do what you can to get them here. But I could see Ethan Long going, well, hold up. Don't let the ship go yet. I need to get on the ship. Because I go back to those swoops and the ICP swoop gang. Both those swoops conked out at the same time. Uh, and it left me thinking, like, did Effentmon have it planned that something like that was going to go astray with those things, thus making it so those kids would also have to rush? Like, it, it definitely seemed like there was more plan there. So, I, I, of course, I'm going the old Palpatine route and making Effentmon seem like he's got a lot more plans going on. But maybe he had it plotted where those things would break so that way he could get the girls from the swoop gang to sell them to Jabba later, had the ship that was going to take those delicacies to Jabba hold up a little bit longer, really pushing that limit on that, how old these things are, then going anyway, because, you know, he wants to get there, and oh, snap, crackle to the pop, this stuff went bad on the middle of the trip, we're hosed. What's in your head? In your head? Devics, de Never mind. <laughs> no, I don't know. It just it just seems uh it seems very, 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 very uh convoluted to me. Um it just seems like this this is a story that just kind of throws in a little bit of whatever the heck they feel like. Um yeah. for instance, okay, Kiati Money needs to chase them down, but there's not time to get another ship and another crew or anything like that. So instead of taking a Syrian crew or anything, he goes on his own. But wait! Don't worry, he'll have help. We have the reprogrammed droid that Effontmon sent against him, plus three other droids that, barring, I think, an appearance in maybe the next storyline, really don't tend to show up ever again within the continuity. It's just this, uh, here you go! And one Here's of some them... some prototype rejects for you. Yeah, Enjoy. Re rejected prototype uh, uh, droids, and at one point... Somehow, like, the, the way the ending plays out, okay, in order for them to know that this, sh this shuttle that is completely unrelated to the rest of the story completely, by the way, Absolutely. that this shuttle that is leaving Jabba's palace is actually bound for the Trade Federation with a bunch of illicit cargo aboard, illicit weapons and such aboard. Uh, Kiari Money has to find a way to get his little droid, Jim, onto that shuttle in order to download its manifest, and then the droid has to sneak into its garbage, apparently, so that then when they dump their garbage, Jim goes with it to be recovered by Kiati Mundi. One, that's a lot of things to try to expect to go right in that case. Two, though, there's that question of, okay, how does Jim get to the ship? Because they're flying in combat near Jabba's palace, not having any knowledge yet of this other shuttle whatsoever, it seems. And yet Key has the foresight to make sure that when he dumps all this loose garbage and stuff out of his ship, that Jim is in the back with it to fly out and apparently very quickly while the rest of the combat is going on, roll his way, because he's a little treaded droid, roll his way to Jabba's, sneak aboard the shuttle, and get in there to get the manifest and such. That, to me, again, felt like it was not a believable story point. There is so much stuff going on in this issue that it seems like a lot of, or this storyline, a lot of uh, shortcuts yeah. were taken. And it just, I don't, I don't know. It's, I'm trying to find a way to put this. It's not that it is a bad story per se. It, it serves its purpose, but it is not a good story. Um, just because something is not a bad story does not make it a good story. This is kind of a <laughs> 
middling type level story and for what it was supposed to do and for the series that it kicks off i think we had then expected more and anyone who is a fan of republic who goes back to read this should expect more uh, from what we get later in the series this just was i don't want to say it was a train wreck it's not that bad it's, it's just, just it tried to do too much with too little and gives mm -hmm. us a six issue arc that just kind of leaves us going afterwards. I mean, I don't care about any of these characters by the time the story is done. I I mm. maybe care a tiny bit about Kiati Mundi, but Kiati Mundi's family doesn't wind up playing a role in her hardly anything else. We find out in the end of this that Shay is pregnant and now is hoping for a son. Do we ever get any resolution out of that? If we do, I sure as hell don't remember it. Um, it obviously was not all that impactful on the character or on the continuity of that character and the story surrounding him um it just it it just falls flat i mean effont when effontmon is your big bad you know you got a problem absolutely i mean i mean what are our tie-ins here to episode you know the prequels we'll just say, we'll say the prequels not even episode one you've got jabba the hut yoda and kayatamundi anybody else anywhere no uh, and, and I mean, then you think about the fact that, okay, if you just tie it only into the Phantom Menace, you've got Yoda and you've got Kai. Uh, it's kind of not really enough to, to fold it on. Uh, you know, go, getting back to the trash aspect of how he dumped off Jim. Now, from everything I gather, they're supposed to dump the trash before they jump to hyperspace and all that. I mean, how much trash is he accumulating in a trip here? I mean, <laughs> we, got drums. we need some more trash. Hey, what do we got in the cargo hold? Let's just ah, stick it all in there. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That was that was weird. Um, you know, and another one was how he got his lightsaber back when he was fighting the droid, the Merc droid down in the sewers. Uh, one of the a messenger was sent by like the, the city mayor or the planet governor or whatever oh kai was right i need to do the right thing here's your lightsaber back um okay and then of course he gets knocked out and then wakes up in the bakta and of course the twi'lek is again and once again the jedi is taking technology's benefits <laughs> oh while condemning it and the guy's like well i'm the one that stuck him in the bakta but I don't know. Yeah, there was a lot of flat moments. For me, it was just odd. All the way around, it was odd. Maybe it was the fact that it was a, a whole story set on the Conehead planet. I'm just not a big fan of Coneheads. I don't know. Well, and we've got the whole, um, you know, how does he know for sure that his daughter was there in the base of Efantman that has recently been evacuated? Because on the ground, there's this thing with anime-style eyes and a frowny face with teeth drawn and it apparently looks like something that she drew 10 freaking years ago yeah his that, epiphany that, that, of he was a bad father <laughs> yeah i must be a bad father and she must be a very angry child because she drew an angry face it literally looks like a frowning emoticon just with teeth and this is something he apparently remembers a decade later to know this is where my daughter was because apparently somehow in her frustration when she really doesn't seem angry or dark sighty at all throughout this story, she's the one holding uh, Maj back pretty much the entire time. Um, she looks more like she's just kind of lost her way than is angry or anything. Um, that, that is his proof that she was really there. And then, of course, he gets attacked by the droid, um, which eventually gets reprogrammed to be very conveniently a droid on his crew. And yeah, you've got this... Um, the kid that is sent to bring the lightsaber. Keanu Money is in the middle of a firefight 
He is in the Citadel, and he is in Ephantmon's secret lair. Now, either that messenger followed him a very, very, very long way and never caught up to him to be able to give him that lightsaber, or he waited till the absolute worst possible time to get involved. You know, uh, gee, I could give it to him at the door. I could give it to him over here. I could give it to him while he's walking. <laughs> but no, I'm going to wait until he's under fire and then throw myself in the line of fire so he has to save my butt too in order to give him the lightsaber. I'm not just going to hand it to him. I'm going to have to stop him and wait till he catches his breath and say, hey, I've got a message. I'm supposed to deliver this. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, by the way, here it is. Instead of saying, holy crap, here's your lightsaber. Save us, please. Um, oh, God. It is just one... One mangled thing after another. Um, at least it gives us background on Kiati Mundi. At least by the time the story is over, we know more about him so that as we see him in later stories, we can kind of empathize, I guess, more with that character. And, I mean, it, it's like any other setup story, you know? It doesn't necessarily matter all that much what the story is around it as long as the character is set firmly in people's minds so that later on they don't have to spend a lot of time establishing the character in subsequent stories. They can just use the character and you know him from somewhere else already. But just, I mean, you, you take this story as a whole, and it's just got a lot of issues to it. I mean, it, in order to distract the Jedi, in order to distract ki mundi we are going to put these two girls, his daughter and the other girl, because Maj is dead, Ephemon has shot him in the chest, so the person they've been trying to hide and the Kiari money has been going after is dead and there's not really any point anymore in chasing him. Um, we're going to attach them to an ion attractor, which is fancy Star Wars way of saying a lightning rod on top of the palace um, so that the girls can get zapped. And there's, a, and there's lightning firing all around them and they manage to somehow survive when people standing next to them, not tied to the big metal pole don't get zapped, um, and to give enough time for him to come there and save them. And how does he save them? And this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, honestly, either. Uh, maybe there's something scientific I'm just missing here. Okay, the lightning is striking the people around the, the metal pole instead of striking the girls who are attached, though they are getting a little bit zapped. They're not getting nearly as zapped as the people around them. Candy Money jumps in, and in falling down, his way of saving the girls initially, okay, is to slice the top of the metal pole off. It's still a huge metal pole, at least twice the height of these girls, in the middle of a freaking lightning storm. How exactly did that save the day? And presumably, the droid that goes down with him must be the one that frees them of their chains, because the next time we see the girls... They're running towards Kiati Mundi, and the daughter's chains are all snapped. So surely the droid must have done it. Must have been the one upon landing to do so, because otherwise, maybe this little girl got some force to her. Because she would have had to go Hulk and rip the chains themselves. But don't <laughs> worry, though, because it's his daughter being in mortal danger that has caused Kiati Mundi to truly appreciate his daughter while he was all angsty yeah, for a few panels back in issue number one, about not having had a son. And it's being near death that causes her to realize that she was wrong. What's the line here um, that it says as she is uh, attached to the lightning rod? It says, I think it's at the end of issue number 
five. Um, to herself, Sylvan wonders, why did it take her so long to figure that out? And why does it feel so oddly like forgiveness? Oh, <laughs> oh the melodrama. Um, I, I will be very glad, as we look at different storylines, when we reach an era in which uh, some of the more recent writers take the helm. I remember the 90s of Star Wars comics as being a very mixed bag. You got stuff like this, and then you got stuff like the X-Wing comics that were mostly pretty good, especially the later stuff. Uh, things like Tales of the Jedi, which were pretty good, and then they jumped back a, an extra thousand years, and they started to not be as good. Um, very much a wavering quality level. Um, say what you will of modern Star Wars comics, but most of them, Dark Times accepted, has tended to be of pretty high quality throughout the most recent years. The 90s were not like that. Um, this is the first tie-in comic we got to a prequel film, which is a big deal given that it's only, what, seven years? Going on eight years after the line relaunched with Dark Horse back in 91. Um, I wouldn't think that it would have taken them that long to really get their feet under them, but maybe this is just one of those stories they weren't sure what to do with because they oh, had yeah. an opportunity to do the link into the Phantom Menace but they couldn't link it in too much. They were given Kiati Mundi again as sort of the Boba Fett character, or the Admiral Akbar to lead into um, Return of the Jedi, where it's, hey, here's a character we know is going to be in there. Just do something with them so people feel like there's a connection, will ya? Well, I almost wonder if it's more a Lucasfilm end, like they didn't give them enough information or tell them where they were going with it. I mean, you know, we mentioned about the purple lightsaber and the retcon they did where Mace and him swapped it out. That makes sense, except for at the very end page where, you know, who usually talks to Yoda about things about the High Council but Mace Windu. So he's being talked to, and this goes, this Kayata Mundi, your former pupil, you believe he's worthy of a seat on the council? I mean, really, Kai? You're, you, uh, really, Windu? You and Kai swapped lightsabers and this Kayata Mundi? Like you, like, you barely know who the hell he is? Like, that? I, I mean, obviously, it must be some other yeah, Jedi, right? I've got I don't it. Know. I've got the whole purple lightsaber thing. I figured it out. You know how people say that Lucas was trying to make a point about, and I don't agree that he was trying to make a point, but they said that Lucas was trying to make a point about American foreign policy when it came to the Clone Wars and Revenge of the Sith, and that there's a lot of politics about aggressive military buildup and stuff like that in the Star Wars films meant, meant to criticize American policy in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if this was meant to be a political statement. If this was someone saying, here's what we're going to do. We want to make a statement about the issue of gay marriage. And you see, people out there keep saying that if you have gay marriage, it'll lead to all other kinds of marriage, like polygamy or people marrying their pets. So here's what we do. We use a purple lightsaber, which is a lightsaber color that is, you know, purple, and everybody says purple is a little bit more towards the effeminate side of the male color spectrum. I get that crap all the time because my college colors are purple. Uh, purple, <laughs> purple, white, and orange. Um, so there's purple that's part of like the, the symbology of the movement for gay pride and whatnot. Then we've got polygamy tied into here with this Jedi with the purple lightsaber. That's meant to tie into the issues it could run into. And we give him a head that looks like it could be designed after a part of the male anatomy. They're making a statement <laughs> here about gay marriage. I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> but I want, but, I mean, it's such a mess that you could wonder, you could wonder, maybe there was something beneath the surface that we just didn't understand. And that's why Mace Windu 
doesn't want to acknowledge Kiati Mundi because the stereotype is that the black community in the United States is more homophobic than other communities in the United States. They made a big deal of that on the news the last couple of weeks because somebody made a play on that thing and it became a whole um, uh, cultural insensitivity issue in American politics uh, in like late April of this year. There you go. That's what this is. This is not meant to be a Star Wars story to enjoy in and of itself. It's meant to be um, veiled symbolism. In that case, the story would have to be kind of thin, and I could almost buy why this story did not turn out as strong as it could have or should have. <laughs> yeah, you know, you almost have to wonder if uh, whoever wrote this kind of wrote the script for Sister Wives. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just I think, though, at the very end, Yoda, he gets the last saying, but you also see that when Kai is getting back onto his shuttle, he still has the droids, which I thought was kind of odd because they're, you know, like you mentioned, never show up again. But Yoda answers Mace Windu or whoever it is that doesn't know who Kai Adamundi is, even though he was Yoda's former pupil, which I thought that was an interesting little tie in there that they then retconned. And he's and everybody... been a stand in on the Jedi Council. That, yeah, that's continuity it. now. Yes. Valuable. He has been already more valuable. He yet may be. Yes, the information he provided on the Trade Federation has been quite helpful. That he was able to concern himself with such matters while his own daughter's life hung in the balance speaks highly of his abilities. And then, of course, you know, I, I believe this is Mace then talking because it then goes very well. We will put the vote, put the matter to a vote, though, considering what lies ahead for all the Jedi, he may not thank you for the honor. So I, I, they don't tell you who it was that was talking to him. Which kind of upsets me because I want to know. I mean, why? Why not? <laughs> I, I'm with you. I, I'm with you 100 percent. Though this is definitely a meh issue. I I mean, I, I look back to it and it, it does not even feel like the beginning of a series. It just feels like something just kind of thrown out there to it, it digest. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. It, it has the feel of those episode one adventures tie-in comics, as they were later called. You know, like episode one Anakin Skywalker, episode one Qui Gon Jinn. It just there's not a lot of there there. I gotta be honest. I found more depth and got more of a feeling for Kiadi Mundi as a character from Vow of Justice, the little backup. Absolutely. Story. We get a quick appearance of uh, the Dark Woman back before she became the Dark Woman when she was just Anya Kuro uh, showing up to bring him away for training, and you know why his family sent him away in the first place. Whenever they were being oppressed by. Uh, but his name is Ben Gardazan, this guy who's like a local warlord who wanted to steal sons because he didn't have ones of his own. Um, we see in the a second part as... wearing sons stealing Serene. <laughs> we see him come back to the planet, uh, despite warnings and suggestions that he should not do so, um, going there to confront Ben Gardazan, only to wind up con uh, finding that Ben Gardazan is basically wasting away and he is basically mucking out the animal stalls because another individual, has, a woman has already defeated him for leadership of this warrior band, and Kiedi Mundi has boasted he could beat the leader with his hands tied behind his back, so she forces him to, and he gets the crap beat out of him. Um, the only thing really that left me kind of feeling uh, stale, so to speak, in checking out this story was the fact that um, uh, in the end, when we finally do get that confrontation between Kiadi Mundi and the warrior leader woman, um, where he finally pulls out his lightsaber... Uh, it's basically she charges at him, he drops onto his back, kicks him in the stomach, flips her on her butt, sticks his lightsaber towards her head, and eh, game over. Um, there's really not much of a battle there. Um, but then, of course, we get our moment with Ben Gardazan trying to throw a knife at him, and he just kind of waves his hand and whoosh, diverts the knife to not 
hit him in the head. There's much more character growth for him as someone who wants revenge for his family, but upon seeing the reality of how kind of time and circumstances have almost got revenge for him, causes him to be willing to let it go and leave the past behind him. That made me feel for the character. That made me like Kiati Mundi somewhat. He's still not a great character. Uh, <laughs> far more than any of the stuff that we got really in Prelude to Rebellion. I think Prelude to Rebellion just, I don't know, it, 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 for, for lack of a better term, it's serviceable. Um, fell short. <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, it definitely fell short of expectations and falls short of being something that I think most people would want to reread. I'm not even sure that you really would need to read this story to read anything else within the Old Republic because I don't think Kiati Mundi ever gets enough depth to really need this backstory to understand his subsequent appearances. Not really. No, yeah, the the last story at the end would be the only thing because of the Dark Woman's tie-in. And, and yeah, the other notable thing is that he's got a green lightsaber in that story. Uh, I, I found it odd that that story was put at the end, not the beginning, as the Zero issue wasn't even collected. I mean, l like I said, we, we've got it up on our Facebook page because unless you know somebody who has copies of the images, it's not available. Wait, I've got it again. I have the answer. Okay. So as an adult, as an old man, Keanu Mundi has a purple lightsaber. But see, when he's a young man, he has a green lightsaber. Now, green is usually thought of as Jedi Masters and being good. Purple's kind of a, a who-knows kind of thing. And we may be able to tie the purple into symbolism for that whole, you know, gay marriage debate thing that he wants to spark in people's minds in the back of their minds and whatnot. See, when you're young, you're, you're very idealistic. You think that your way is the only way that you are good, everyone else is evil. So, of course, you have a green lightsaber. Maybe as time goes on, his opinion changed. Uh, his opinion on the issue of gay marriage, as in the case of President Obama, evolved over time, <laughs> and he felt like he couldn't carry the green anymore. It was a symbol of his being closed-minded in the past, and he must now carry a purple. There is so much more to this story than we ever realized by the man who spells his name with what feels like a missing vowel. Sternat. You know, the only other thing that's made me really care for this character is a toy. And I'm looking. It is a concept, I believe, of episode three where he is missing an eye, dressed kind of like a pirate. That one toy had me the most curious about what was going on with, with Kayata Mundi than anything ever before. Next to in the Dark Horse comics where he becomes Anakin's master when Obi-Wan gets captured by Asajj Ventress and they think that he is left dead. And then he takes over as Anakin's master for a short period of time. Those are about the only two events that really make that character leap right out to me and make me want to know more about him. This comic, I, I got to say, for a lot of reasons, it kind of turned me off to the character instead of turning me on. This is very, very true. Um, I, I will say that he... For lack, of, for lack of a better term, he's sort of the grounding or the anchor character that we get for this series, at least for a while. Until Quinlan Voss becomes the primary character that we follow most of the time in Republic, they needed some kind of anchor character. And if this was going to be a series built around characters showing up in the new films, mostly background characters like the Jedi Council characters, there weren't really a lot of characters to choose from with much depth already. Yes, we eventually find out that, that all these Jedi Council characters have a lot of depth, and eventually we see a lot of deaths among them. Uh, and they're major sacrifices because we've known the characters for so long. But at this point, barring Yoda, we really didn't know the Jedi Council members. I mean, we could look at Mace Windu and say, hey, he's Sam Jackson. He's one bad mother. Shut your mouth. But that's all we knew about 
Mace Windu is we is we took qualities attributable to Samuel L. Jackson in other films and just kind of laid it over Mace Windu for the time. Um, he was also given that same treatment because he got that uh, preview figure of himself that Hasbro put out. So at this point, they need someone to act as our focal character, someone for whom these other characters are going to uh, act around, and they just happen to choose this guy. I don't know if this story would have played out better or worse had they chosen someone else on the Jedi Council, even Peel, Eeth Koth. I mean, it just kind of has me sit back and say, maybe there was no way to be as successful with this at the time as me looking back on it, I think they should have been in oh, hindsight. No. Mace fiction, right there. If they'd have done this about Mace, it would have been a totally better story. The Force, mother can you feel it? So yeah, I mean, I feel like we're just beating the living crap out of this story. I, I, it's, again, it is serviceable. It is not good, but it is not bad. It is just kind of there. Um, as an introduction to Keati Mundi, it works all right. Um, as an introduction to this era, it really does nothing for me. Uh, I honestly, this is the first time that I have reread this story probably since around 2002 or so. Um, I, whenever it was, I put it on the Star Wars timeline gold and then went back to a few years later, double checked that I hadn't missed any like main event references. That would have been the last time that I read this story. And when talking about doing this, we behind the scenes stuff you guys don't know. Um, we got we got our wires crossed on what we were going to be talking about this time. Uh, Mark was thinking Prelude to Rebellion. I was thinking Rebellion, the comic series, like the first arc of that. So I reread My Brother, My Enemy, which is awesome for the most which part. We'll be talking about next week. Yeah, which we'll <laughs> talk about next week. Um, so then he says, well, no, a Prelude to Rebellion. It's like, oh crap. So I go through, and in about an hour, I reread all six of these for the first time in at least a decade. And boy, is that a deflating experience when you read all these in a row after reading something like My Brother, My Enemy, then to read through this uh, and be prepared for discussion. I mean, it is, it's just not a uh, – when he said Prelude to Rebellion, and even when I realized, okay, we, we, we've got the one we're going to do. We're going to do Prelude to Rebellion. We'll hold off on the regular Rebellion. We'll do that next time. Just that sense of, I really have to read this again. Uh, it's one of those issues from the Star Wars line. Um, not something that I could really recommend to any um, listeners out there who are just getting into Star Wars comics. This is this is one to certainly pass up, except for the fact that it introduces Key's family and that whole continuity issue that was made such a big deal about in 2002. It's somewhat a quick read. I'll give it that because, you know, when we realized we were crossed up, I grabbed my rebellion and was going through that. And I was like, oh, my God, there's a lot of dialogue in here, <laughs> which shows you how far Dark Horse has come when it comes to their storytelling. I mean, there there was a lot less going on in this all the way around. I, I, I'm with you. It doesn't make it a bad story, but it doesn't make it a good story. It's it's a quick read in the way that I've noticed some of my dentist appointments have been. If I go to the dentist to, say, get a cavity filled or something uh, or whatever, or get a crown put on because I've had multiple root canals in the past, um, it always feels like I'm under and it's taking a lot longer under anesthesia and whatnot than it actually does. Like I'll leave and like half an hour will have passed and it felt like I was there for the entire afternoon. That's kind of like this. It is a fast read. It doesn't take long to read it. 
but it sure feels like it does. This was a slog yeah. for me to get through in that hour. Well, I mean, look at it like, like this. I mean, you, you read it in that hour, and I was rereading it again in that hour, and you still beat me. <laughs> Probably because in the back of my mind, I was going, get it over with, get it over with quick. It's like pulling a Band-Aid off a hair. It's okay, just do it quick, and it'll be all right. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, suffice to say, those are our thoughts on Prelude to Rebellion. We would certainly welcome yours, especially if you disagree with us and you are a big fan of this issue in this series. Maybe you can provide us with the insight into why we should celebrate this storyline instead of panning it, because we're just not seeing it. But then again, we are perhaps jaded because it is 2013, and this was a story from 1998 and 1999. Maybe the, the charm has been sort of sucked out of it for us over the years because <laughs> it's it's not something new and it's not something that's exciting to us right now maybe i'm i'm maybe. trying to put a positive spin on this somehow well now you'll notice that we're doing something a little different last year we were kind of backing a lot of themed episodes together now we're kind of jumping all over the time frame well that's because at the moment we're hitting up a lot more of the comic series so we're kind of going to bounce about the goal is to work up towards vector uh you know so you're going to get a lot of those type of series some stuff that nathan has kind of covered before with the eu review try to give it a whole new spin if we can uh you know and i'm sure some of nathan's opinions will be kind of the same not exactly sure we'll get to that when we get there but we're going to, like you said, next week we're going to be doing uh, Rebellion, and then uh, we're just going to be all over the place from there on out just uh, as we work our way towards Vector and getting into some fun stuff. We'll probably do something like this also with the New Jedi Order. We might even slide some of those books in along the way as we go. Uh, you know, we've, we've bantered back and forth about it, you know, but I, I really, I, I think it'd be fun to hit each book. And if we got to take and spread it out a long time, I, I think it's worth the ride, and I think you listeners, you Beyonders, would enjoy it. Uh, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you guys once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links of our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. So if you have any questions, be they Star Wars and or EU, or if you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. With more than 100,000 titles, you can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you just don't like. Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. In this digital age, if you are thinking of making the switch from the page to the screen or just adding a digital library, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, still trying to come up with positive things to say about this series. <laughs> You'll get there. And now we're saying, may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that this really was meant to be political symbolism and I didn't just pull that out of my butt. Or the odds that we'll find some more coneheads that will enjoy or disenjoy them. Or the odds that those people were eaten by the pupics. By thousands of them. I don't know. Or that they're now all running around haphazardly throughout Tatooine. That's a good one. Or the odds that I may have some good odds one of these days. I swear in the last four episodes, I've got nothing. 
That's right, Whistler. Welcome to... Wait. It would help if I had the mic in front of my face. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to Episode 70 of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Oh, that's not changed. Damn. Alright. I will do it this time. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. But also, fear leads to confessions, confessions lead to criminals, criminals <laughs> lead to incarceration, lead to everything is hunky-dory. It could be, but I mean, he's walking around, he's spending, he's spending a heck of a lot of sh <laughs> Is my computer wrong? Um. What's in your head? In your head? Devix, Never mind. Mace fiction, right there. They'd have done this about Mace, it would have been a totally better story. The Force, mother can you feel it? 